Welcome to the Redemptions Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, redemptionshill.com. Well, it's good to see you. We, uh, last week we spent our time finishing up the Beatitudes section of the Sermon on the Mount. And despite that, we kind of said it before, but despite that, we wanted to carry on a a little bit longer in this sermon because the next couple of sections of scripture, uh, there's a good chance if you've been around church, you've heard them before and you've heard them preached on, uh, but it's quite likely that you haven't heard them uh, preached on right after the Beatitudes, meaning that there's a good chance that we've learned these texts divorced from the sermon. Sermon on the Mount or the place that it comes. And most likely, and more importantly, we've heard them separate from the Beatitudes which lead up to them. And what's difficult in these next texts that come after the Beatitudes is if they're understood separate from the Beatitudes, we'll likely hear a, a call to mission and uh, evangelism in, in not the full entirety of the way that Jesus preached it. And we'll likely see our role in the world as more focused really on just the side of going and proclaiming and sharing and, and speaking out to those who don't know Jesus. Uh, and we'll focus maybe a little bit more on that than living the life that Jesus called us to live as beautiful witnesses to the world around us. So, so we want to balance this out. So I want to make it clear, we're not going to focus only on actions and forget evangelism. That's definitely not the goal, especially when we see the entirety of what's going to happen this week and then the following text of the light of the world uh, next week. So, so we don't want to be those who end up ignoring their neighbor in a pursuit of personal holiness, but we do want to balance in a healthier way than we ever have living a distinctly Christian life by following Jesus through what we see in the Beatitudes and then let that help us gain credibility with our neighbor so that we may share with them the hope that we have in Christ in word. This is the balance of word and deed. So here's the question that I want to pose to us. You know, I hinge on those a lot. If you like that, great. If you don't, I'm sorry, they're just going to keep happening, but the, the question that I want to ring through our head for this week and next, all, all week long, really, is this. And I believe that this question encapsulates the, the drive that Jesus wants to hear in the text. So, so here it is. It's not complicated, but what if Christians aren't very Christian? What then? What happens if proclaimed Christians look no different than, than non-Christians? What if, what if uh, people who, who claim to be new creations in Jesus look exactly like the old creation did? Maybe there's really no functional difference besides maybe they go into a building when COVID wasn't around. See, if our lives were looked upon, would they be anything in them, anything at all that showed that we were redeemed if we didn't have going to church as, uh, as a habit, as our only defense? If someone looked in personally, would we have the, the, the slightest kind of whiff of weirdness because of Jesus about us, or would we fit in perfectly with everyone else who is not a new creation, with people who, who have never been called son or daughter of God, loved and cherished, beloved that I'll never let you go. Do we look the same as people who do not have that reality about them? Again, I want to make sure to clarify uh, the hope isn't to go into this stir guilt and duty out of us. Uh, it isn't to walk us away from today going, oh man, it just highlighted how terrible I am. The hope is with fresh eyes and fresh hearts, we'll see the amazing beauty of what Jesus called to do us to do, and, and maybe we would remember it in a more beautiful way that would that facilitate something new. 
Jesus came to redeem believers, to literally set them free from their sins. So we'd no longer be slaves to sin, meaning we participating in it all the time without really being able to change it. And, and he also made us not under condemnation of sin, but that's not the extent of what Christ came to do in every man, woman, and even child who believes in him. He came to transform them into new creations, into new people, but maybe we've been so possibly uh, so strongly fixated on Jesus paying our sin debt that we accidentally kind of minimized or forgot that there's more to it than that. We are redeemed to redeem is what the Bible would say. We are saved so that others may be saved. We'll flesh that out more as we keep moving. But the biggest prize isn't just that we escape punishment. It's that we're invited into the greatest narrative ever as God is redeeming lost things to himself. And when he redeems us, he sets us out to be a part of that redemption. Let's read the text for today and hopefully we'll make sense of this. I'm going to read the the whole thing if I want us to see it in light of the Beatitudes as well. Then I'm going to go ahead and read the Beatitudes connected with verses uh, 13 that is the, the core text for today. But seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, again, this is Jesus speaking, his first sermon, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Last week we covered this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. This is the word of the Lord. So this is what we have to understand. Jesus did not preach verses 1 through 12. Right? He didn't preach the Beatitudes and they go, okay, let's take a short break. You can go to the bathroom, find a bush, go, go get something to eat or something like that. And then come back and, and after this short break, we'll go to my next theme. That, that's not what he did. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth in conjunction with the Beatitudes, not separate from them. That may sound like a small idea, but it's most definitely not, I, I assure you. In the Beatitudes, we see this picture of what Christ has come to do in and to believers. That is, we see a picture of who we are in Christ in the Beatitudes. We are those things because of Christ. Now Jesus begins to show us what we do as we live out the who we are. Right? Who we are is the Beatitudes, this salt and light, that becomes what we do when we live out the who we are. If that's confusing, let's frame it up together as Jesus does in the sermon. We are, all of us who, who follow Christ, all who say that they follow him and are redeemed and are saved and are new creations, we are poor in spirit. We are mourners, we are meek, we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we are the merciful, we are pure in heart, and we are peacemakers, so that we may be the salt of the earth. What does this mean? It means who we are matters. 
If we want to do what we are to do, then we have to be who we are. Who you are is meant to affect the world around you profoundly. I'm afraid in the middle of some things in a pandemic, maybe we've just been lulled to sleep a little bit in that. This is also how we know that these verses are meant to go with the Beatitudes because Jesus says the who you are, those who are living out the Beatitudes, will at times walk you into persecution. That's the text last week as the world rejects you. But at times it'll do something else amazing. People will come to know Jesus through you living out who you are. Sometimes it'll go poorly, but other times it won't. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we pass therefore from the contemplation of the character of the Christian to a consideration of the function and purpose of the Christian in the world. In other words, in these verses that immediately follow, we are told very clearly the relationship of the Christian to the world in general. Our relationship to the world is something that has given the church or believers issues for a really long time. Chances are we've personally had issues with it as well, but uh, the, the church has tended to vacillate back and forth like, a, like an unhealthy pendulum between two extreme viewpoints on the matter of, of how we are to operate in the world. The first posture, the, the first unhealthy swing is a life that is lived in isolation away from the world. This is the first posture when things go wrong. The idea is from believers, we're no longer of this world. We are sojourners. We no longer fit in. We no longer operate like the world does. So we're going to carve out a new way of operating that exists mostly to the best of our ability, kind of beside maybe having to go do a nine to five, that, that exists away from the world. This is how tribalism happens where we only hang with people just like us who do what we do and believe what we do and, and kind of spout out the company line. Though this group falls into this mindset and they normally get villainized for it, what we should see is I think their core desire is actually really good. Just their view of God's plan for them is a little bit short-sighted. Meaning people who do this, are, they're normally just trying to be faithful. They see the world as a place where it's really difficult to follow Jesus. So they, they, they do quite a bit to live in a way um, that, that, that separates it for themselves from that world so they can follow him better. See, this maximizes their ability to live holy or different lives from the world around them, but it does it at the expense of mission. It does it at the expense of being salt. It does it at the expense of being light to the world around them. The other extreme, right? One is isolation. The other extreme is to live so closely with the world that you look just like it. Right? The separation stays away and hopes to try and be holy. This group tends to fall in line with the world to either fit in, maybe not ruffle feathers, or maybe to just not be that Christian, right? Because we don't want to be that Christian. This group, too, I think has good motives for the most part, but they're short-sighted in that as well. Their desire is often to love the world really well to be next to people who are hurt and broken. And in that, they try not to offend them unnecessarily, but they do it by normally trying to tone down maybe the, 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 the possibly offensive parts of faith, namely the word like sin and everything that comes with that. Maybe they do it because they want to be accepted by the people around them more than wanting the people around them to accept the king of kings and savior who they need. Now, why do we bring up these two extremes, the, the separationist and then the person who looks exactly like the world? And what in the world does that have to do with salt? Well, it's really important to remember that Jesus prayed on the eve of his crucifixion this prayer. We normally, I think we view it as a transition, but, it, but it's a large theological premise, really. Jesus prays, Father, 
I do not ask that you take them out of the world. The them is the church. I do not ask that you take them out of the church, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. What is he saying? Well, he says very specifically, no, don't take them out. I want them there. I want them to be in the world. This means that a separationist mentality is ignoring Jesus' uh, his, his calling for you over your life. He says, no, I want you in there. But even as we are in the world, we aren't to be of the world or just like it. Jesus prayed, I'm not of the world. I'm distinctly different than it while among it. So those who blur the lines, who don't intentionally walk out the Beatitudes, who don't really care about holiness or purity of heart, those who, who really want to fit in just just perfectly with the world, they're also forgetting Jesus's call. The call is to be in the world, but not of it. Don't isolate yourself away and and, and don't co-op everything that they do. Be in it, but distinctly different as what? As the salt of the earth. This brings to us the obvious question, what in the world is the salt of the earth? Maybe we've heard the expression, he's a real salt of the earth kind of guy. Referring to someone who's deemed a good person or a quality individual, but that's not at all what they're talking about here in the text. Right? God's grand plan to redeem those who are once sinners doesn't stop at just asking you guys, hey, be decent people. Just, the bar is decent human being. There's something much more powerful that we're called to be a part of. To grasp that, Jesus was saying when he said, you all of you believers are the salt of the earth. We need to understand what salt was back then in order to understand what he's saying. Salt had three main functions, taste, preservation, and thirst. If it's not clear, Jesus is using this as metaphor, right? And we're going to look at these metaphors and hopefully it'll help us understand a little bit more of what Jesus is trying to say through our obedience and following him. When he says salt of the earth for the purpose of taste, this is, this is salt for taste. We for ages ha- have used salt to add savor or zest or, 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 or some zing to otherwise bland food, right? It can be added to things that are unappealing to just straight awful and, and they can kind of be palatable or kind of nice, right? Have you ever had popcorn plain? That's gross. Have you ever had boiled peanuts? It's disgusting. Have you ever been overseas and had uh, and had unseasoned goat? Ah, it's bad. Job six. It even says it in the Bible. Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Even Job knew you need salt. Some stuff is nasty if you eat it plain. Jesus is drawing upon this understanding as he calls us the salt of the earth. Upon hearing this, we may think, well, Jesus is using this like sweet cliche about us. He's saying, you know, we're the spice of life. We're that extra pop that makes things good. That thing that makes, you know, life worth living or something like that. But what Jesus is saying here is actually quite a bit more dark and provoking. He's saying, without my people following me in the way that I've called them to, without my people embodying being poor in spirit, without us embodying meekness and mercy and peacemaking and the other things involved in following Jesus, without my people cutting against the grain of the world by living out my kingdom here in the mountain and now in the middle of the broken world, there'll be this element of the world that is literally unbearable to take. 
again, it's not that you are a salt, a pinch of salt that makes a kind of good thing much better. You are salt. This is Jesus saying you're the saving grace to an otherwise metaphorically inedible or intolerable world. I need you out there. Jesus is and always will be the, the, the hero of the, uh, of the story, church. This is undeniable. But the hero calls us in the world to literally change the way the world feels. To change the taste, the perception, the flavor that the world gives off. You may think, well, man, that is dark. Well, there's more coming for that. But he, here's what we have to understand because you're like, what do I do with that? Does your neighborhood have a different feel because you're in it? Does your job have a different dynamic because you're where you're at? Even if it's remotely, does your hobby areas, do the places that you go, are they literally different because you are salt of the earth in an otherwise broken world? Are you changing things? Not by your own power and and, and will, but is Jesus in you, in the places that you're specifically placed in, is it changing the way that things feel? Salt is a preservative. Back in Jesus' time, in ancient times, there was no electricity. Not everybody had a fridge or a freezer or two freezers and all that. If you've ever watched a survival show, you've probably seen it, right? When a person kills a big game animal that can't be consumed really quickly, right? They, they first of all, they're normally starving, and so they eat this good meal, and they gorge themselves, and then instantly afterwards, their, their entire focus shifts on to preservation. Why? Because they know in time, if left alone, meat will spoil, right? Some wine, some cheese, some bourbon, some stuff like that. When you leave it alone, you're like, man, it gets really good and it's more valuable and it's, and it's sweeter. Meat's not like that. When left alone, fairly quickly, it rots because of bacteria. It gets destroyed. It is putrid. It is disgusting. Like you even come near rotted meat and you're like, oh, you want, you want to get sick. It's a terrible thing. For this reason, before refrigeration, the main way to keep meat from rotting was to bathe meat in salt. It's called curing the meat. Salt is applied liberally all over the, co- the, the, the meat. And what does the salt do? It draws the moisture out, at least from the outside, and moisture is the main thing that bacteria needs to be able to grow. So by that, it stops the bacteria and it lasts longer. The thing that would decompose on its own is able to, to, to last longer, to stay edible, to, to, to be functional and good for longer because of the salt applied to that. Imagine you lived in the desert or a fairly warm climate and you didn't have a refrigerator and you also couldn't, didn't have the, the, the money to be able to go to a store every day and just pick whatever you want. Uh, this, created scenario, or this created a scenario where salt was needed by all people. If you had no salt, there's no way to preserve your meat, and there's a decent chance that you would starve. All people who heard Jesus talk about salt would have thought of this first. When you hear salt, they thought meat preservation in life. Now, what does that mean when that is really applied to our understanding of our own lives and Jesus calling us to be salt of the earth. Jesus was saying the world, like meat, is decaying. It's not neutral, it's not fine, it's not mostly good without intervention or preservation. It's just going to keep 
spoiling. This, this view is kind of hard. Man, that's kind of negative. But that's the premise over the entire Bible. Because of the fall, stuff is broken. Us and the entire world is broken and our world leans towards. It's like gravitational pull. Without Jesus or the gospel, we lean towards evil, brokenness, war, strife, racism, and all those types of things. When left alone, we go bad. For all of history, men and women have put certain hopes in things to fix that. The Enlightenment, for instance, believed that really, you know, knowledge is the great problem. The reason that we're always leaning into evil and brokenness and things are terrible is we just don't know. And they believed that really in the Enlightenment, if we could just teach everyone enough, then people wouldn't kill and there wouldn't be all this terrible stuff anymore and and we'd have nirvana and we'd be happy and everything would be good. Our land will be healed just if we fill in the gaps of knowledge that people don't have. As if sin was just a matter of knowledge. But that, that ship has sailed, right? We have more information than we ever have. We have anything we want in a cell phone and we are no more close to, to united, healed, loving, peaceful, tolerant, or any, any good thing. We're, we're no closer than we were before. The argument can be made that we're further off. The point is this. The world is constantly being pulled into darkness and decay. And Jesus says the responsibility, the calling, the job of a believer is to be salt. It's to help slow the decay to be a living and active preservative, to because of following Jesus, because of living out the Beatitudes, there is literally less evil, brokenness, and darkness in the world around you because of you living out the life of Jesus around the world. Here, it's not just saying if my people will follow me, they'll sin less and therefore there'll be less sin. It's they all sin less, and because of their example, the world will sin less. There will be less darkness. We will push back darkness by following Jesus in the middle of the darkness. What does that look like? How could our lives tangibly restrain evil or or darkness or help be a preservative? Have you ever witnessed, and that's rhetorical because we have, when a group of people all of a sudden curve their behavior because somebody enters in? Right, specifically a person that they respect or think of as, as godly. Maybe they use the word moral or, or they're, they're, they're super religious or anything like that. But when, they, when this person who, who a group considers like I have, they, they have a strong faith, uh, they're a real deal. And all of a sudden they walk into a situation and like the, the language, the, the demeanor, the jokes, even literally the plans of the group stop because this example enters into the story all of a sudden. This is what Jesus means when he says you are the salt of the earth. Your life, your behavior, your witness through your character, your beatitudeness of following me should be applied to the earth to literally change the way it's decaying. What a profound calling to live our lives in such a way that others change, modify, or alter their behavior without us manipulating them them to get them to do it. Okay, You'd be like, man, the world's so angry right now. Like, they're not going to accept that. Nobody's going to change. Yes, there are those who rage online about godliness and a Christian life. 
There are those who rage and scream and degrade and make fun and persecute and call us all kinds of of things. Yes, but there are those who are in real life, not online, but in uh, the flesh, in the realm of, of actual life, who in real life see godly character and they literally change because of it. Does it mean they become saved? No, but they literally change what they do. God gave us a living faith to live out in the world as his plan to redeem all things. Salt to create thirst. There was a large part of the population who kept livestock back in Jesus' day. So a lot of them had either dealt with a herd of animals or they'd moved an animal or something like that. So they're, they're pretty familiar with, with animal stuff, okay? We'll just put it that way. And, and of the problems that would have uh, really came about when you had a herd of animals or you were on an animal, one of the main things that would happen, or at least a common thing that would happen, is, is you going to a water hole with an animal or a herd and you've gone this long ways and you just need to feed them and, then, and, and so they're okay and you can relax, but you get them to the water spot and then they won't drink. Like, oh, they're all going to die or I'm going to die if they don't drink. This would have been a common problem. You get a stubborn animal to a watering hole and they won't drink and you have to figure out what they would do at that point. A common trick for shepherds and other people that day would be to take a pinch of salt out and feed it to the animal. The stubborn animal would not take a drink but it could not resist to lick the salt. What happens when that happens? Thirst is generated. The salt creates a thirst. The animal who so strongly didn't want to drink before then begins to drink. The connotation of this is does your way of life and we've got to cut through the noise. I don't mean your voting or your Facebook profile or the the talks that you give every once in a while. Does your little, literal way of life, people around you at the job and other environments, does your way of life make the world thirsty for something down deep in their soul? Is your way of life salt applied? Where they see your life and something in it, and even if they don't want to, something in them says, I want what they have. I want to be like that. I want a marriage like that. They actually like each other. I want peace. I want steadfastness. I want to believe in something the way that they do. I don't even care what it is. I just, I want something. The reality is, if our life creates a soul thirst in other people, we cannot quench it ourselves, but we can direct them to the one who can. All of these metaphors, salt for taste, salt for preservation, salt for thirst, all of them can be understood only in an active fashion. Meaning, if you place a salt shaker on the table, but you don't pour it out, you don't sprinkle it, there's absolutely no ability for that salt to change the taste of the food. If you take a a tub of meat and and then a tub of salt and, and you place them on opposite sides of the room and you've got the salt and you've got the meat, but they never actually meet each other, the meat's not going to be preserved. It has to be applied. And if we are salt that never gets tasted because no one ever sees anything distinct as well, There'll never be a thirst in the soul of those around us that is urging to find peace. 
See, these metaphors show, uh, show us that we cannot be salt that gets placed neatly in a container and stockpiled and set aside. Salt, in order to do this work, has to be applied. It has to be back to the extremes in the world. If it's not in the world, it can't be applied and there will be no functional change and no stopping of decay and no change of the way that, that our neighborhood and our job and other things feel. If we're not distinctly different, none of that stuff will happen. We have to be in the world. This means to separate yourself from the world by living away from it, by, by insulating and isolating yourself away from uh, those who still need Jesus, by only hanging out with, with people or inviting people into your home or doing things with people who are just like you in your Christian community is to be the salt of the church. That's not what he asked for, though. You're the salt of the world. To be in the world. Father, don't take them out. I need them here. Our plan needs them here. Isolationism, no matter how holy we think we are, will never allow us to be salt of the earth. But then look at the tail end of Jesus's verse 13. A lot of people have debated the scientific properties of this. That's not what he meant here. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall, it be, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. To be a follower who stays away from and retreats from the world, it is to be a salt that is never applied, that's to never be used for its intended purposes. But then Jesus says a statement that is, that is quite powerful. He says, what about if you try to be salt that is applied to the world, meaning you don't isolate yourself and you don't stay away from the world, but... What if your salt that's lost is saltiness? Bad salt, faux salt. Then what? Salt that doesn't taste different. Salt that you can throw piles of it on meat and it, it, won't, it won't help anything from stopping decaying. Salt that doesn't make anyone thirsty. It, it literally doesn't incite anything. It's just there. He says, how shall that saltiness be restored? What good is it? How will it be useful in the way it was meant to be if it isn't salty? This draws us back to the beginning question. I wasn't trying to be overly creative. What if Christians aren't very Christian? Whereas Jesus says it, what if the salt isn't very salty, then what? This is to say, what if people who claim to be Christian don't act like Christ? What if people who claim to be pure, when you look at their life, you see they actually don't care about purity at all? What about people who claim to be merciful, but they're actually quite brutal when you catch them on their wrong day? What if people claim to be righteous, but they're actually extremely apathetic? The connotation here isn't that if that's the case, God will rage at you and steal your salvation away and hurt you. The connotation is the world that still needs you to be the salt will get no salt from you. We'll have no way to come to, to Christ, to be redeemed, to taste something different. That's why this text isn't meant to stir shame or duty. This text is to remind us of the calling that Jesus put on our lives. Our Lord and Savior and the entire Bible reveal a beautiful plan to redeem, to reach out into a decaying world 
and see parts of that world that is dead in their sin come to life in Christ. By the church of Christ living profoundly different lives because of what Jesus has done in them since they've been saved. This is to be the salt of the earth. You're like, but what about speaking the gospel? That comes next week. This is amazing news, though. It means every single person in here who follows Jesus, not just pastors or or the MC leaders or theologians or public speakers or extroverts or good Christians or or people from a non-broken home or anything like that, every single person in here whose faith is in Jesus, your identity is salt. We get tricked into like, I, I don't know enough to be helpful. This has nothing to do with an IQ. It has everything to do with obedience. This is all about this first metaphor, what you do, how you live, real lives changed by a real savior, trusting and following him, him can bring about meaningful change in our direct community. Here's the question. Do you believe that? You, you, you who know me, you know I'm, an, I'm a cynic. I'm always asking, is that a lie? Always. Can we bring about meaningful change or not? Can our lives do something or not? And in a 2020 world of, of a pandemic and outrage and politics and issue after issue after issue and in the larger spectrum of, of what we kind of call the dumpster fire of 2020, can we make a difference? Jesus says yes. This is the drive that our Savior is sharing right after the Beatitudes. So I want to cap that off by asking two questions, hoping that they will be helpful. I don't have some super brilliant, witty question to ask. With these two questions, I pray that we would just ask the Holy Spirit to help us with them this morning. First is this, am I in the world? Or have I been long, long before covid just in my own world? And am I of the world? Do I look just like it? Is there no discernible difference about my life, about how I do things, about how I react? Am I in the world? And am I of the world? The hope is that through that, Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, would help us answer those questions and then help us walk us clearly back into our identity. To encourage us more to walk out the beautiful call and identity that he's given. There's going to be moments that we will forget what we are called to do, and there's so many moments of patience where grace after grace after grace, uh, our Savior says, it's okay, come on, let's let's go, follow me. 1 Peter 2. 9 through 12 says this. If you'll do this, if you just shut your eyes and just hear this text for a moment. This is a word over the church, those who follow Christ. Not some, not people with a microphone, not people with a loud voice, all sons and daughters, all who follow. But you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. That's who you are. A holy nation. A people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 
Once you're not a people, but now you're God's people. Hear this, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Church, look at me. We have a beautiful Savior who's given us a beautiful calling to be salt, real salt, by following him, by modeling him. So the hope is that we would be those who we could say with our lives, we push back darkness, not by our superiority, not by our knowledge, definitely not by our self-righteousness, but are just humbly following and trusting Jesus more. That we would push back darkness in a busted up world. See, our hope today is that this calling and vision would be restored deep in our souls so that we may live as our Lord and Savior called us to. As those who show the world Christ in our lives every single day through our actions and what we do. As we close and kind of get ready to take communion and worship, uh, again, hear that last line. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. That means even as we as we come to the table, your actions, what you've done, how you've paid attention to mission, there's still a sacrifice for you. You've been given mercy and that doesn't get taken away. First Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says this, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Where we're doing communion right now, church, is just during the last three songs. At any point, we'd ask that you pray first that you, you can take the body and blood of Jesus, even in the middle of a pandemic, is shed for you. You still have mercy, a Savior who says, come and feed and eat over the reality of the grace that I've given you and then walk out as the people that I've called you to be. I pray that your soul would be strengthened in that. I pray as we ask the Holy Spirit over the question of am I in the world, it's probably helpful to know we can easily think of the other guy as the separationist, right? Well, it's the person who lives in a commune. It's the people who are in a cult. They're the separationists. To not be in the world looks like not having anyone like you in your home ever. It looks like not hanging out with people who don't do everything that you do. We can be separationists by not really going anywhere and just putting our head down and doing our own thing. Jesus calls us to be in the world as in present and active and loving people who need him. And then as we do, modeling him well. And I pray that we're stirred for that and a vision for that would be restored in us. Would you stand with me? Father, I pray that you help us through this. Holy Spirit, we need you. I pray that we would receive just a new beautiful picture for what you've called to do us once sinners, lost, now sons and daughters, now fully loved, sealed. You'll never let us to go, but you've also deployed us into the world so that others may know you. I pray that you will do that. 
that we would be encouraged to walk out the beauty of who you are and what you've called us to do and that other people would come to see you through it, God. Holy Spirit, strengthen us. Revive us, encourage us, give us wisdom to see ourselves clearly. And also to remember your grace when we do. Maybe we've been in the world and, and, and maybe we have been salt. I pray that you just encourage our hearts. Even if we don't see the work that you're doing, may we know that you are working. So for the faithful, I pray that you encourage them. We pray this in your name. Jesus, I pray that you are glorified. Thank you for your patience and mercy extended to us. We love you, God. Amen.